All right, well, why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 1. Once again, Titus chapter 1. And what do you look for in good leadership? What type of person do you want over you as a leader? What makes for good leaders? History gives us several ideas. You take Abraham Lincoln, for example. One of the keys to his leadership success was the fact that he did not sharply criticize others. On July 4th, 1863, General Lee, during the Civil War, he was forced to retreat from the Battle of Gettysburg. So he and his troops, they fled south, but they hit the Potomac River, which was at that point swelled, and it was overflowing because of a massive storm they couldn't cross. And the Union Army was closing in on them from the north, and so Lee was trapped he knew it, and President Lincoln knew it as well. He saw this as a heaven-sent opportunity to finally capture Lee and his army and put an end to the war. So he sent immediate orders to Meade, who was the pursuing general, to, to not call a council of war, but to attack immediately and capture Lee. But what did General Meade do? He did the exact opposite. He called the Council of War. He wasted precious time in hesitating to attack Lee's army. And he disobeyed Lincoln's order. And so what was the result? Well, the waters of the Potomac receded, and Lee and his army escaped. And because of this, the war would go on for another two years. So how do you think Lincoln responded to Meade's failure? Well, he he sat down, and by Lincoln's standards, he wrote Meade a harsh letter. But here's the thing. He never sent that letter. He trashed it. He, He vented his frustration on paper, but he refrained from actually expressing it to Meade. And Lincoln's refusal to sharply rebuke others like this, it won him a lot of respect, admiration, and loyalty. Or maybe we should learn what to look for in a good leader from good old Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, when he, he was so diplomatic, so careful in dealing with other people. He was, he was quite a peacemaker that he was made the American ambassador to France after the Revolutionary War. And so what was his leadership secret? Well, he's quoted as saying, I will speak ill of no man and speak all the good I know of everybody. Franklin chose to highlight the best in people and not the worst. Or maybe we should learn what to look for in leadership from the corporate world. And from our own history in America, we've got a few big leaders. Andrew Carnegie, known as the second richest man in all of history, provides an example. Carnegie learned to lead by giving other people what they wanted. And he learned to deal with other people in terms of their desires. At one point, Carnegie, his sister-in-law, she was having trouble with her two sons. They were off at college, they were sitting at Yale, but they never wrote home, and they ignored their mother's frequent communications. Sounds familiar probably to some of the moms. And so the, the two boys were seemingly so detached and preoccupied that nothing could get them to respond back home. And Carnegie made a bet, though. He bet $100, back then, a lot of money, he bet $100 that he could get an answer from both of these 
boys in writing by mail without even asking for it. So how is he going to pull that off? Well, he wrote each nephew a letter, mentioning only in passing at the end of the letter that he was sending each of them a $5 bill, which, again, back then, a lot of money. However, on purpose, he failed to enclose the $5 bill. <laughs> so as sure as the sun rises, back came in the mail replies from both of the nephews. And whereas Carnegie led by giving people what they wanted, we have John D. Rockefeller, the number one richest person in history. He led by the old saying, you can catch more flies with a drop of honey than you can with a gallon of vinegar. 1915, Rockefeller, he was the most despised and hated man in Colorado. And why? Well, his company witnessed the bloodiest strike in American history. The troops were called in. They fired on the miners. Men were shot and killed. And the strike continued. So how was Rockefeller going to win over the angry strikers? Well, the first thing he did was spent two weeks meeting with the strike representatives. He befriended them. He visited them. He got to know their families, their children. He became their friends. Then when the time came to address the strikers in a speech... Instead of angrily rebuking them, he spoke to them all as friends. And his speech was overflowing with, with kindness and generosity and appreciation and, and just friendliness. And the result? The strike ended. So this is, these are a few examples of what successful leadership looks like in the world. But what about in the church? What should we be looking for in our leaders in the church. You see, the difference is for us in the church is that we're not interested in turning a profit. Our goal is not to win a war or secure a national championship or be the most popular. Instead, we seek to minister the gospel and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So what does it take to lead the church in this? What qualities should we demand from those who lead God's people? A lot of churches, they just want a pastor who's funny, energetic, someone who draws a big crowd, who's popular, tells good stories, and easy to listen to. At the end of the day, they just want an entertainer. But what really qualifies a man to shepherd God's flock? It's not your IQ. It's not your intelligence or your education or the number of degrees you have. It's not popularity or, or talent or money or success. And it's not necessarily what we see in the great leaders of the world. And so what is it? Well, God answers that question in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And I want to know what God thinks. I want to know what God thinks leaders should look like for his people in the church. So read with me Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, 
For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So what makes a leader in God's eyes? It's character. It's godly character. Not how popular you can be, how much profit you can make, but godly character. In this text, Paul delineates three categories of qualifications for leaders in the church, for elders in particular. Family qualifications, character qualifications, and doctrine qualifications. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to carefully examine these qualifications and see what it takes to lead the church. Because we want to know, and we want to know well, what God expects. If, if the leadership fails, the church fails. And so this is something we cannot afford to get wrong. We have to get this right. And so we're going to spend the time to do so. Now before we get into it, though, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to front load our time with application. Normally you think, well, that, that's for the end of the sermon. But at the beginning, I want to spend some time showing you and, and explaining to you how this applies to you and how this is relevant. And well, why? Well, a lot of people might be thinking that this passage on elder qualifications only applies to the elders. And that it's your cue to sit and to learn at a distance. You know, you think to yourself, these, these qualifications, they're not really for me. And therefore, those guys over there, I'll sit, I'll listen, but, you know, this really isn't that relevant for me. And if you might be thinking that, you would be wrong. These, this section of scripture, it's not only important for elders. You know, I want to show you how it applies to everybody in the church. This really is a valuable and, and quite applicational section for everybody. Obviously, especially for elders, but really for all God's people. So to start off, just, just quickly, I want to show you five reasons why these elder qualifications are for you. Five quick reasons why these elder qualifications are for you. First one, this is how you should pray for your leaders. This is how you should pray for your leaders. You need to be praying for your leaders, and you need to pray that they would measure up to this standard. This is how you should be praying for them. You may think the leaders in the church, they've got the most prestige, but in reality, they have the biggest target painted on their back. Because spiritual warfare, it's, it's the most heated for the leaders. And so all the more so, God wants you to be praying for them. First Timothy 2, two for your elders and really for all who lead. So this is how you should pray for your leaders. Number two, this is how you should look for leaders. This isn't the Middle Ages anymore where everybody belongs to the Catholic Church and you don't really have a choice. In whatever town you live in, you know everybody's in the church. No, now in a, in a very real sense, you can choose your leaders. You essentially choose who you want to place yourself under. Let's say a year from now you move to Texas. You've got to find a new church. What kind of a pastor are you going to look for? What kind of leadership are you going to put yourself under? What kind of elders do you want to be leading you? Because that's what you're doing when you, you're picking a new church to, to go to. 
Well, the answer to those questions should be right here in Titus 1. You want this type of person. You want this type of man, the Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3 guy to lead. This is how you should look for leaders. Number three, the third way this applies to you, this is how you should hold your leaders accountable. This is how you should hold your leaders accountable. There's no papal infallibility here. You know what that is. Everything the leaders of the church say and do is open to accountability 24-7. It's a big deal. I mean, there's no off-the-clock for church leadership. Now, we know no person is perfect, sinless, or even close. That's not what we're talking about here. But God gives the church this standard so that they can measure their leaders and when time comes, to hold them accountable. Hold them accountable to this standard. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Number four, this is how you should aspire to be a leader yourself. This is what God says about being a good and qualified leader. This is God's instructions on what it takes to lead the church. Now, do you think these principles would apply and God would bless this type of leadership in the corporate world? Of course. And what about parenting? I mean, do you think you can learn how to better lead your kids from what God says about qualified leadership here? I think so. I think there's much to learn yourself in whatever leadership capacity you might have. And for the men here who maybe someday aspire to be elders, and really for all the leaders in whatever capacity, there's much to learn from these elder qualifications in Titus chapter 1. And then fifth, last way this applies to you. This is how you should be a Christian. This is how you should be a Christian. You may be thinking, wait a second. I thought these are elder qualifications. I mean, these are for the elders. These aren't for me, right? Well, this is, this is the point I want to make. Not so fast. See, here's the thing. Everything we learn here, or we're going to learn, everything that's listed, everything that's included in these elder qualifications... They are, in reality, also Christian qualifications. This is simply what it looks like to be a godly and mature Christian. That's all this is. Now, let me explain. Look at verse 7, Titus 1.7. Just for an example. It says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And so well, are these things okay for non-elders? And so if you're not an elder, God thinks it's okay for you to be you know, self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, fond of sordid gain. That's okay because you're not an elder. No. And I think you get the point. Everything on this list is like that. And furthermore, we're not going to take the time to do this, but everything listed here, you can find elsewhere in Scripture as applying to everyday believers. So here's the point. There's only one standard for godliness. That's the point I want you to get here. There's only one standard for godliness. There's not the standard over here. It's just for the elders. It applies to them. And this separate standard over here, that's for the rest of us. No. There's one and only one standard of godliness for believers. So what's the difference? The difference is that elders are held to a much higher accountability to the one and only standard. They're held to a much higher accountability to the one and only standard. They need to have progressed along this one standard to a certain point. 
to even be qualified for their position. And that's the difference. But everything that God wants of elders, he wants of you. The difference is that elders must be at a certain place. They must pass certain benchmarks to be qualified for their job. But look, you know when, what we're going to be studying, this is just the picture of godliness. This is just a picture of what God wants his people to look like. And remember, we're talking application here. I just want to be a little bit clear with this. We all know that the meaning of this text, it's for elders. Uh, don't get me wrong, this is for elders primarily. But the application here extends to everybody and very directly. This is God's one and only standard of godliness. This is what God wants from all of his people to one degree or another. And so even if you're not an elder, this is what God wants you to be. Verse 8, for example, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. That's for you, right? God wants that for you as well. So that's my point. Application point number five, this is how you should be a Christian. You take heed this standard and seek to conform it, your own life to it, even if you're not an elder. And now hopefully by doing that up front, it keeps you invested. This is for you. It's not just for the elders, what we're going to be studying over the next couple of weeks. There's a lot for you to, to take in from these elder qualifications. Well, now that we, we've covered that sufficiently broad application up front, we can start getting into the text itself, Titus 1. We first need the context. Verse 5 provides us with that context. Look at verse 5. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Verses 6 through 9 paint the portrait of the elder. Verse 5, it's like the picture frame. It's telling us what's going on. And what is going on? Well, at some point after being released from prison, Paul's first Roman imprisonment, he goes back to Crete with Titus, the two of them. They go back to this island. This was not his first time to Crete, however. When he was being transferred to Rome as a prisoner, the, the, the vessel stopped at Crete to harbor. And for whatever reason, maybe he liked the people, maybe he liked the scenery, maybe he liked the island lifestyle. Whatever reason, Paul determined to come back to this island whenever he could. And now's the time. He, he has gone back. Crete was a, a good-sized island. It's about 150 miles long. It, it was well-populated. It was in a key location at the intersection of the trade routes of Europe, Af Asia, and Africa. And so that made it a strategic location for the gospel. And after being released from prison, Paul visited these churches, and he began the work of setting them in order. But this was a work he did not complete he left, and he left Titus behind to finish. I'm sure Paul is very anxious, after being released from prison, to go back and to visit all the other churches that he planted. So he didn't stay long in Crete. He left, he left Titus behind to finish up. What was Titus supposed to do? Well, verse 5. He was to first set in order what remains. This word for set in order, it's a compound word meaning to thoroughly set straight. And the root, root word is orthao, which means to set straight. We get the word orthodontics 
which is the practice of straightening teeth, or orthopedics, which is the practice of straightening bones. So what in Crete needed straightening? What was Titus supposed to straighten out? Well, there were false teachers that he needed to set straight. That's true. And the church did need instruction and doctrine and conduct. That's true. But primarily, Titus was to straighten out the leadership. The leadership. Titus needed to straighten out the leadership. And the next phrase in verse 5 helps explain Titus's task. Look again at verse 5. Titus was to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Hand in hand with setting these churches straight was appointing elders in them. Word for elder, you originally referred to someone who was older, but it came to denote the office of overseer. Elder, pastor, overseer, bishop, those all refer to the same person. It's the same office in the New Testament. And Titus was to appoint men to this office. Now, I want you to understand how this process works, of how Titus was to go about appointing elders. And he wasn't just going to walk into the church, pick a few guys, make them elders, move on. Not so much. This would have taken some time. And you have to remember, Titus, he didn't know these churches that well. He didn't know the people. It would have taken him months, if not years, to really get to know and find out who were the qualified men to handle the task. thing is, he didn't have that much time. So he would have relied on the churches themselves to identify the godly men and put them forward. Titus would show up. He would tell them these qualifications. The congregation would then nominate or put forward candidates And Titus would, as the acting elder, evaluate and approve men for service as elders. And you see this exact same process in Acts chapter 6. And why don't you turn there? Let's look at that. Acts chapter 6. This is the text where the apostles are faced with the task of appointing deacons over the people which is a similar office to elder, just obviously a little bit of different roles. But they need to appoint deacons. How are they going to do this? How are they going to go about appointing deacons in the church from scratch? Let's let's read Acts chapter 6, start at verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Verse 5, This statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, verse 6. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. You can stop there. So, who's in charge here? Who summoned the congregation? Verse 2. It was the twelve apostles. Congregation isn't voting on the matter. They're not getting together to to run the show. 
This is not a congregation-run church. But the congregation does play a very important role. What's that role? Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, talking to the congregation, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, the apostles, may put in charge of this task. What was the job of the congregation? It was to select or to nominate seven men. And the apostles, they, they relied on the congregation to nominate men because the congregation knew the men better. They just had a better knowledge of who are the qualified guys of good reputation. But who is going to put these men in charge and give them their authority? Was it the congregation? It was not. It was the apostles. Hence, verse 6, these men, they're brought before the apostles for approval. The congregation works with and under the leaders in the process of appointing new leaders. So this is what Titus would have done in Crete. You can turn back to Titus 1. He would have done this. With the input of the churches, he would have evaluated and appointed the elders they put forward. And this was Titus's task of setting the churches in order and appointing elders. Now even from here, right away, just from the context, there is an important lesson to be learned for all of us. What does it take to set a church in order? What is needed to set a church straight? Money? A nice building? State-of-the-art sound system, video, PowerPoint, drama, lots of programs? No, the answer is godly leadership. Qualified leadership. That's what's needed to set a church straight. That's what's needed to set a church in order. Well, now we get to verse 6, where we start to see the portrait of godly leadership itself. Again, three categories in these verses, family qualifications, character qualifications, doctrine qualifications. But before we even get to those, there's one overall qualification, one big one, overarching one, verse 6. What is it? Namely, if any man is above reproach. Here we have the very familiar, and really the ultimate elder qualification, being above reproach, being blameless. And both here and in 1 Timothy 3, this qualification is brought to the very beginning. It's first, it's foremost, it's the most important. It's an umbrella term. Every other qualification falls under this one category of being above reproach. Elders must be above reproach in every category listed or mentioned in the rest of the verses. Big question, of course, is, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, let's start with the easy one. What does it not mean? Being above reproach or blameless does not mean being sinless, because then, obviously, there would be no elders. Just nobody's qualified, because no man is sinless, of course. But literally, this one word in the Greek means being unaccused or not having been called up or arraigned before a judge. It's not that you're, you know, you're called up before the judge and you're found innocent. That's not it. It's that you can't even be charged. You can't even legitimately be brought before the judge. That's what it's saying. Your character, your conduct, they're so sound, people can't bring any serious accusation of wrongdoing. 
They can't. It's another way of saying that you have an outstanding character or literally an above reproach character. Literally, above reproach. You are above people reproaching you or bringing a reproach against you. They can't do it. Nothing sticks. You're free from blame. Calvin's words in his commentary on Titus are very helpful here. He says, quote, by this word blameless, blameless, Paul does not mean someone who is free from every fault, for no such man could ever be found, but refers to one marred by no disgrace that could diminish his authority. He should be a man of unblemished reputation, end quote. And so for example, you know, let's say you were to claim the president stole your car. Now that's not going to fly. Nobody's going to take you seriously. Why not? Well, being the president, he is considered to be above reproach. I mean, you need some outstanding evidence to even bring that to court. I mean, even go anywhere with that. That's what we're talking about here. Elders need to likewise be considered above reproach. They need to be men with proven character. That's why they can't be newborn believers. They have to have that proven, long-standing character such that they're known for being upright. And this is why, 1 Timothy 5.19, this is why Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Why? It's because they're above reproach. They're considered and, and proven to be above reproach. Now again, we're, we're not talking about being sinless or perfect in these qualities. These qualifications, this is an important point, these qualifications, they're about who you are. They're about what you are overall characterized by. Let me give you an example. Verse 8, Titus 1. Elders, overseers, they must be, what's the first thing there? Hospitable. Let's say you have a guy who wants to be an elder, but he is not hospitable. He never practices hospitality, never cares for people, goes out of his way. He's a very inhospitable man. But one time, just once, he invites some people over for dinner practices hospitality, gives him a meal, and he's done. Would you say this man is hospitable now? No. Well, why not? I mean, he just he just practiced hospitality, right? Well, yeah, just one time, though. You see the point. His character, the way he is as a person over time, he's just not characterized by being hospitable. And that's the point. These elder qualifications are not concerned about what you do or fail to do every now and then. That's not the point. They're concerned with who you are, with what you are characterized by as a person. Elders can sin and still be qualified, but if they are known for sin, if they are characterized by sin, if they are still locked in some habitual sin, they are not qualified. That's the difference. So being above reproach doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean being upright and blameless. Nobody can bring a serious reproach against you that sticks. Your reputation is unblemished. Your character is pristine, and you are free from any disgrace or habitual sin. And this is the most basic, the most fundamental requirement for an elder. Being above reproach, first and foremost. So now... Everything we've done, technically introduction. It's one of those sermons. Everything has just been introduction. We're just now ready to get into these actual qualifications of the rest of the list. And throughout the rest of verses 6 through 9, Paul paints a portrait of godliness. And it's a portrait which elders must 
closely resemble. They've got to look like this. This has to be their reflection in the mirror. So we've seen the context. We've seen what it means to be above reproach. Now we're ready to get into it. Like I said, it's going to take a couple weeks. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're only going to attempt to get through the first category mentioned, family qualifications. Family qualifications from verse 6. And so specifically this morning, I want to show you the two family qualifications of an elder. The two family qualifications of an elder. The first one is a godly husband. An elder must be first a godly husband. Look at verse 6 again. Namely, if any man is above reproach, and then first, he says, being the husband of one wife. Now, as you know, the office of elder, pastor, overseer, it's an office that God has set aside for men, and as such, they're to be the husband of one wife. The question we want to ask, of course, is what does it mean to be the husband of one wife? Or literally, what does it mean to be a one-woman man? Because in the Greek, that's literally what this says, a one-woman man. What does that mean? Well, fair enough. Well, first, Paul is not saying that an elder must be married. Most likely, for everything we know, Paul was not married. Titus probably wasn't married. And he deliberately says the husband of one wife, not the husband of a wife. There's a reason he says that. Also, Paul is not writing to exclude widowers who have remarried. We learn from Romans 7, the death of a spouse ends the marriage covenant. That person is free to remarry. And that by no means disqualifies them or prevents them from being someday an elder. man who remarries after his wife passes away is not disqualified. And also, Paul, he's really not trying to speak against polygamy, believe it or not. You might think that's what he's saying. But at that time, in the Christian community, it was already a given that you know that was a, that was a no. People weren't going to be doing that. That was already... Understood, you know, no one's having multiple wives. So what does he mean? Well, instead, being a one-woman man means living faithfully with one wife. The picture is of a man loving his wife and fulfilling his God-given role as a husband to his wife. He is faithful and devoted to loving and caring for his one and only wife. MacArthur gives a useful comment here. He says, being a one-woman man refers, quote, to the singularity of a man's faithfulness to the woman who is his wife and applies inner as well as outward sexual purity, end quote. Now get this straight. You can be married to only one woman but still not be a one-woman man. You know, a man can be married to one woman, but have an emotional affair at work with another woman. That man is not a one-woman man. A man can be married to one woman, but neglect her entirely and her needs. That is not a one-woman man. You know, just being married doesn't cut it. It's not just saying, just be married and you can be another. This is talking about being loving and faithfully devoted to shepherding your wife and caring for your wife. That's what we're talking about here. Now remember, this is not a formula. It goes back to being above reproach. If a man is a man above reproach in the matter of being faithfully and singularly devoted to his wife. 
One commentator named Chappelle helps explain this tie-in between being a one-woman man and being above reproach. I want to read you this. He writes, quote, This word reminds us that Paul's marital standards for leaders relates to, their commu- relates to what their community observes, observes about them. The literal phrasing seems less concerned with one's marital history and more focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to his spouse. God requires the church to determine whether a potential elder's marriage is whole, healthy, and solid as part of the assessment of whether that person is qualified for leadership in the church. End quote. I think that's useful. This is the type of man God is looking for. A godly husband. And what does this tell you about what God thinks of marriage? Pretty big deal. It sounds pretty important. I mean, if you can't be God's kind of husband, you can't be God's kind of leader. God wants men who to lead his church, who love their one and only wife, who care for them, and who are singularly devoted to them. And after all, God wants his shepherds to display the same love, care, and devotion to his flock. Does he not? I mean, if you can't be singularly devoted to the care and spiritual growth of one wife, how can you be devoted to the care and spiritual growth of one flock? You can't. God wants godly husbands to lead his people. Now, the application to all the men in the room should be obvious. And do you think God wants the same of you? I mean, do you think God holds you to the same standard even if you're not an elder? You better believe it. And this is really the same standard as Ephesians 5.25, which we read a little bit earlier. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and, and gave himself up for her. It's what God calls you to. I think we've all encountered guys who, they think being devoted to your wife is you know, weak or mushy or not manly. No men don't love their wives. They, they drink beer, watch football, fix cars, hang out with the guys. That's what our society says, right? Wrong. Real men, in God's eyes, love their wives. And they, they cherish the gift that God has given them, and they care for that gift. Was Jesus a man? Was Jesus a true man? Did he love his bride? Was he devoted to his bride? And Christ went so far even to die for his bride in devotion and love for us, the church. And this is why Christ is put forth as our model for marriage. Husbands, look to Christ. We need to love like him. So guys, let me ask you, what are you most devoted to? What gets your time? What gets your attention? Sports? Cars? Friends, work, hobbies, sleep. You fill in the blank. And if you guys deep down in there feeling a little uncomfortable, you know it's time for you to step up and, and shape up, take that next step in being a godly husband and being a good leader. Then you just need to consider what you are most devoted to. And you do whatever it takes to make God number one on that list and your wife, not your kids, your wife number two on that list. That's what you need to do.
whether you're a leader in the church or not. God wants men who are godly husbands. So that's our first family qualification of the elder, a godly husband. The second one is very similar, a godly father. The elder must be, secondly now, a godly father. Look again at verse 6. If any man is above reproach, being the husband of one wife, secondly now, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Second family qualification that God demands of men is that they be godly fathers. As a reflection of their parenting, they must have children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, if you pick up on it, right away, you have a big interpretive issue in verse 6. Some people take verse 6 according to the NASB, which reads, children who believe. In other words, to be elder qualified, your children must be saved. And people who hold to this view, they understand that fathers don't have the power to save their children. But they reason, look, if God wants you to be an elder, he'll save your children. So that's view one. Other people take verse 6 according to other translations like the New King James Version, which version which reads, faithful children. In other words, to be an elder, you must have faithful children, obedient children. They don't have to be believers per se, but they must be faithful and obedient to their fathers. Now, I'm sure you guys can see, it's kind of a big deal. This is a big issue. If the meaning is children who believe, and there are countless elders out there who are technically disqualified because they have unsaved children, and there's a lot. But at the same time, if the meaning is faithful children, there's also a lot of men out there who are wrongly being kept back from being an elder who are otherwise qualified. This is one of those tiny little texts that has big implications for how we actually do things at church. So which is it? Well, the majority view is that elders must have faithful children. We don't determine doctrine by popularity, though. That being said, that just so happens to be my own personal view and the position of Berean Bible Church. Elders must have faithful children. Now, normally, I do a ton of work behind the scenes in my office all week, do the research. I just kind of give you guys my conclusions, and that's how you know preaching goes. And I'm not trying to get too technical up here. But I figured that you know right here, do a little rabbit trail, and actually take you guys through, reason with you, and show you why I believe, why we hold to what we hold. And take you through some of the you know, under-the-hood process of how we arrive at a conclusion like that, just for the fun of it. Now, if you're out there and you're allergic to serious Bible study, just bear with me. Just, just, you know, just stay along with me. But I think it'll be helpful for you just to see you know, a little more of the, the technical side of things that I do all week. So let's get into it. Why do, we, why do I hold to this? Why, do we, why is this our position here at the church? Well, first you have this word in question, pista, in the Greek. P-I-S-T-A, like a piston, but, you know, pista. Elders must have children who are pista. This word shows up 66 times in the New Testament. 53 of those it's translated as faithful in the NASB, and 13 times it's translated as believing. All that tells you, though, is that this word can very well be translated as faithful or very well be translated as believing. Both are legitimate. That's all you get from that. 
Now, some would argue that this word should be translated as believe because unbelievers are never referred to as unfaithful, or excuse me, as faithful. But this fails to take into account the numerous times this word is used in reference to people in general without even concern, being concerned with whether or not they're believers or unbelievers. Several times this word is used just generally, just of people in general. For example, when pista is used in reference to a servant, it doesn't have anything to do with whether the servant is being considered as a believer or unbeliever. It's just talking about whether he's faithful and obedient or not. And so true, this word may never be used of an explicit unbeliever, but it's often used of people in general without reference to them as believers or unbelievers. Now let's talk about the context. Here's, you know, Bible Interpretation 101. It's all about the context. You've got to get the context down. Because the ultimate meaning of a word, it's determined by the context. Context is like the surroundings. It's just everything that comes around it. That's how words get their meanings today. So what's the context of Titus chapter 1, verse 6? Well, Paul further defines what he means by this word, pista, in the rest of verse 6. Look, look there. He says, elders must have children who are pista, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So whatever this word does mean, it's the opposite of dissipation and rebellion. What Paul is doing here, he's developing a contrast in this phrase, and it's what's called technically a negative apposition to pista, this phrase. Basically, he's just saying it's contrast. He's setting up a contrast in verse 6. What's the contrast? Look there, you can see it. Children must be pista, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So based on the contrast, what, what do you think this word means? Faithful and obedient? Or believing. It should be obvious. Paul doesn't say that children must not be accused of heresy or unbelief, in contrast. He says, in contrast, children must not be accused of wild, uncontrolled living. The fact that Paul contrasts this word with two attributes of disobedient and unruly living makes it pretty clear. An elder's children must be faithful and obedient, not accused of rebellion. The last thing I'll do is point out to you that this position is entirely confirmed by other scriptures. Everybody agrees Titus 1 is parallel to 1 Timothy 3, where Paul gives these two parallel elder qualification lists. So why don't you turn there? Make this quick, but just turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll see the second list of elder qualifications. In both chapters... Paul is giving instructions on how to identify elders. He starts the lists exactly the same. What he says is practically the same. But in this parallel list of elder qualifications, Paul never tells Timothy that elders must have saved children. It's nowhere to be found. It's not even close. It doesn't even suggest it. Instead, in very clear language, what does he tell Timothy for the elders at Ephesus? 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's pretty clear. The picture of the elder in 1 Timothy 3 
It's not that an elder must have children who are believers, but that they must be obedient, faithful, and under control. Some would still try and say that, well, you know, 1 Timothy 3 refers to younger children, while Titus 1 refers to older children after the age of accountability. But unfortunately, that's called reading something into the text to support your view. Because that's just nowhere to be found. I mean, it's the same word for children in each. It's just there's nothing to suggest that whatsoever. So, at least in my opinion, I think it's pretty clear that Paul never intended to require elders to have saved children. And if he did, it would be pretty unfathomable that he would leave this out of the list in 1 Timothy 3. I mean, what? Are the elders in Ephesus not required to have saved children? It's a pretty big deal, so you think they would need to know that. You think that would be important information? There's there's practical problems. You know, how do you even know if your kids are saved? That's the age-old question. What's the age of accountability? What about infants? Are elders disqualified in their, until their kid makes some profession of faith at age nine or something like that? That just doesn't make sense. Instead, in First Timothy three and in Titus one six, the children's behavior in relation to their father's authority is in view not their salvation. God does not require elders to have saved children, but they must respect his rule. The point being made here is that if an elder cannot lead and shepherd and rule his children, how can he lead and shepherd and rule the church? If they don't, if they don't respect him, how will the church respect him? So in conclusion, Titus 1.6 should read, Children who are faithful. The other must have faithful and obedient children. So that's our little rabbit trail. I hope you survived. It's kind of what I do all week, you know, behind the scenes, but I thought it would be useful for you this morning. But verse 6 is not done. Elders must have faithful and obedient children. Look at the rest of the verse. And these children must, what, not be accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, we don't hear this word dissipation too much anymore, but it means like a, a drunkenness or an overindulgence. You know, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Or 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. So that's a picture of this word. It's just this very wild, uncontrolled, oftentimes into you know drinking and partying lifestyle. Overall, this word for dissipation refers to one who has abandoned himself or herself to his or her fleshly appetites. One commentator writes, Such a person has placed himself beyond the safety of clear thinking and wise choices. He has utterly given himself over to reckless moral behavior. Such a life is often marked by wanton indulgence in alcohol, drugs, and sexual misdeeds, end quote. Bottom line is, the elder's kid can't look like this. I mean, he can't be uncontrolled, he or she, and out of control like this. Second, an elder's child must not be accused of rebellion. He says, rebellion. This is an unwillingness to live under God's law, found by those who reject God's truth. You want a picture of this? Just read Luke 15, the prodigal son. That's your picture of a child rebelling against his father. It's someone who rejects 
their spiritual father's authority and also their physical father's authority. Father in heaven and earth, they reject them both. That's rebellion. And although the point of this second family qualification, it's clear. I mean, when you really boil it down, what's Paul saying in verse 6? Elders must be godly fathers. That's what he's saying. Elders must be godly fathers. If you forsake to discipline and raise your child, you can kiss being a leader in the church goodbye. Because if you can't lead your own family, how do you expect to lead someone else's family? If you can't keep your own house in order, how how can you keep God's house in order? You can't. Going back to being above reproach, the man whose children are in rebellion is easily open to the reproach of neglect and poor shepherding. Now let me just throw out there, you know, parenting and, and being a husband and wife in a marriage, they're difficult. I don't say this to, to speak down on some who, you know, aren't qualified. The point he's just making here is not to make you feel bad that you may not be qualified. He's just giving the qualifications. At the very least, this is the one and only standard. And if you aspire to be an elder, you've got to make it to that level. That's what he's saying. So here we have at the head of our list two family qualifications of an elder. An elder must be a godly husband and an elder must be a godly father. Now if I can leave you with just one last point, there's a lesson to learn for all of us, especially for the men. And so the mere fact that Paul even includes family qualifications in this list, the fact that it's even here, and furthermore, the fact that it comes first should tell you something. And what does that tell you? It tells you this. Whether you're an elder or not, true spiritual leadership starts at home. That's the lesson. True spiritual leadership starts at home. And men, get this point. And I'm going to give you guys the last word. You know, the pandemic in America, it is now undeniable. Namely, the loss of strong male leadership. Men are now passive, lazy, irresponsible, ineffective. It's wreaking havoc on society. It's wreaking havoc in the church. And God calls you to reverse the tide. He calls you to stop waiting around for something to change. He calls you to change. And he calls you to step up. Stop looking around. Look at yourself. God wants you to step up. He wants you to be the leaders in the church, but first, in the home. You know, lead your families first. Don't worry about being an elder or teaching a Sunday school class or leading a small group. Don't worry about that. First, you worry about leading your family. Consider how you're leading your wife. I'm going to assume you know what you need to do, so let me just ask, when are you going to start doing it? Or consider how you lead your children. Are you waiting for someone else to do it? To raise them, to lead them? Time is now to so heed the call to step up. And wives, support your husbands. Let me tell you something. It might come as a shock to you about your husbands. But we're not perfect. Your husband, I guarantee this, your husband is going to fall short of where God wants him to be. It's just going to happen. We, we fall short. But God still calls you to love him and to support him, to be patient with him, 
to be in his corner. That's where you need to be. Wherever your husband is at, I don't know. You need to be in his corner, supporting him and pushing him along in a loving way. Pray for him a lot. Support him and lovingly help him grow as your leader. So I leave you with that by way of exhortation, really an encouragement to, to, to do, to act, and to get excited about being the man that God wants you to be. From Titus 1, we all see the importance God places on these family qualifications. So may we all pray for God's help and grace in rising to the occasion, because that's what we need. We can't do it on our own. We need God's grace. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Father of grace, we, we do now pray for your grace upon us, upon all of us, especially the men, to be the man that you want us all to be, whether we're elders or not, Lord. You want us to be godly husbands, godly fathers. We praise you for the word you've revealed to us. Now we just ask that through your spirit you would act in us. Help us, Lord. Help these men here to rise to the occasion, to be the men that they need to be, to shed off the ways of the world or the ways of childhood, and to be men. May they love their wives as Christ loved the church. May they love their children and shepherd them, not exasperating them, but, but guiding them in the truth. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in this church and all the churches in our nation to restore manhood to the land so that we would be known for what you want us to be known for. That would be your type of people. Bless us, Lord, as we go from here, and, and may we learn more about you, learn to worship you, learn to live for you. In your name we pray. Amen.